All right, well, good morning, Grace Hill. Just wanted to hey, say thank you to our worship team, for Evan and the band, uh, for leading us. Many of you might not know this, but Evan and Melody, our new office administrator, uh, just wrote that first song that they did. So what a gift. Uh, what a blessing to sit under that, that awesome song written out of the book of Jude. And so we want to welcome you here today. We're excited to continue on. Happy Father's Day as well to all our fathers out there. And we're excited to continue on uh, in our, our new series we began last week titled A New Covenant People. So this is week two. Uh, so last week, our first week in the series, we began by unpacking uh, the biblical concept of covenant and why that's so important, why it's so significant as this is the primary way that the Lord has chosen to pursue his people through biblical covenants. And so here is our guiding statement that we looked at last week uh, as we moved through these different covenants. We said that God uses covenants in the Bible as the means by which his promises are revealed and his redemption is realized. And so first we saw this with Abraham as God kick-started his, messy, his, his redemptive plan, promising blessing and offspring to Abraham. And we saw how Abraham's offspring, a.k.a. the people of God, uh, would one day be used by God to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, we saw in God's covenant with David how out from God's people would one day come a specific man, a specific offspring, who would bear the sins of others and institute his eternal kingdom. Of course, we learned that this was Jesus whom the Davidic covenant was prophesying. We then took it a bit of a different turn and we looked at the story of Ruth and the covenant love that was shown by her um, to another, to, to both her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, as well as to the Lord of, of pledging faithfulness to follow them. And so how basically because of her faithfulness to Naomi and to God, the Lord used her covenant to bring blessing to the world as she would eventually become uh, the great-grandmother of King David and then great-great-great-many-times-over-grandmother of Jesus after that. So through Abraham, David, and Ruth, the Lord used the concept of covenant to reveal his promises that he had for his chosen people and then to move them further along in, in the salvation plan of seeing redemption realized for his people. So if you didn't get a chance to check out that sermon or to hear it last week, I'd encourage you to check it out as we just go more in-depth unpacking this idea of biblical, uh, the biblical concept of covenant and why it's so important. So check that out. But for today, we're going to be looking at two more covenants um, that God establishes with his people. And I believe that these two covenants are really the most important for us as the church uh, today. So we're going to be looking at what's known as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Covenant of Law and the covenant of grace. And honestly, there's, there's a couple reasons why I believe that these two are the most important for us as the church today. First, the new covenant is the covenant that, that Jesus established at the cross when he died, rose again, conquering sin and death. And so as Christians, this applies directly to us, right? This is the covenant that we currently live under. This is our hope as believers. This is also the most recent way that God has chosen to reveal himself through his son, Jesus, through the person and work of Christ. And so again, this is us. We are a new covenant people. Another reason why I believe that these two covenants are so important is because these are the two that the Apostle Paul interacts with the most in the New Testament. So he writes extensively on the interplay between the old and the new, how they relate to one another, and how we as Christians living under the new are to think rightly about the old covenant, how we approach it. And the reason that Paul writes so extensively on these two covenants is because, honestly, because of, of sin. What I, what I mean by that is we all have a natural bent towards living under the law, towards living under the old covenant. 
Now, we were created by God to live under grace. We were created by God to, to live in total vulnerability and total reliance upon the Lord. We were created to just, as we said last week, to come to the Lord with open hands, trusting that he would provide for all of our needs. But we don't do this. Instead, we want to be our own masters. We want to, to feel as if we don't need help. We don't need a savior. We're inclined to think that we can just perform, that we can even perhaps earn our way to God. We can find the path to God on our own through our actions. We all have this, this inclination to do this, to, be, uh, to follow the law, to try and create the law as the means of salvation. And this, honestly, this was the sin of Adam and Eve. They failed to trust in God, to trust in his words, and instead they chose to do what seemed best in their own eyes. And so we are guilty of this as well. And so because we have uh, just this bent, this propensity towards thinking and living in this way, man, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of our true identity as new covenant people and as people who live under grace. And so that's where we're going to be headed today. So uh, I'm excited. Let me pray for us, and then we can dive in. So Father, I think of that last song we just sang, Oh, come to the altar. Lord, we just want to come to you now. We want to bring our, man, our sinful tendencies and our inclinations to try to, to try to establish ourselves, to try to feel in control. And we just want to relinquish that to you now, God. We want you to speak to us, to hear from you, Lord. We want your spirit to minister. So come now and just do a work and show us how we are called to be a new covenant people dwelling on those new covenant promises as we're going to look at later saturating our minds and our hearts in those truths. So help us to see rightly and to understand from your word now as we look back and we look back on the way that you have pursued us through your covenants. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So the place in redemptive history we're going to pick up is actually the story really between David and Abraham and it's going to be right in the Exodus with Moses. With Moses. So you can turn to the book of Exodus and specifically we'll be in Exodus 19 so you can turn there. So God has just used Moses to save the Israelites, to draw them out of Egypt. He's rescued his people from slavery. And so here Moses and the Israelites have been freed from the Egyptians, right? They are in the desert and they are on the way to the promised land. So this is where we're going to pick up. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, it says this. While Moses went up to God, up to the mountain, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here we see the Lord calling the people into covenant obedience to himself. The Lord even says, if you obey my commandments, you will be my treasured possession in a nation of priests. Um, you know, I love this language, the nation of priests, because it's actually connected back to what the Lord says to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, as we talked about last week, about how his offspring, Israel, would be a blessing to the nations. And so in the same way that a priest mediates blessings to uh, to the people from God, so too would Israel be the kingdom of priests that mediate God's blessings 
to the world. This is how they're going to bless, be a blessing to the world. The world is going to learn about who Yahweh is through Israel's faithfulness. So in the following chapters, the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. He gives some other laws about how they're going to be faithful and follow him. And then in Exodus 24, we see the covenant ratified. It says this, Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So he lays it all out. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? So the people agree to be obedient to the covenant. The covenant is ratified with a sacrifice. And then I actually love how it ends a little further down with them sharing a covenant meal together. It's kind of cool. And then a little bit later on, the book of Deuteronomy, so the next book over, two books over, towards the end of his life, they're about to enter the promised land, and Moses recounts, he kind of reminds them of this covenant. He says, hey guys, here's, here's what it says. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant steadfast love, has said, remember we talked about that last week, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So the old covenant, the law, is put in place. And the Lord says, if you follow me, you will be blessed. You will be like a priest of nations, a, priest, a nation of priests to the nations. And so you might hear this and think, man, Nick, this sounds great. This is an awesome part of the story. I love it. But we know that Israel couldn't keep the covenant. We know that eventually they, they failed. And you would be right. Here in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God's people pledged to keep the law, but almost immediately when they get to the promised land, they forget. They worship other gods. They forget Yahweh. So, so what does this mean? Right? Are, are they not blessed anymore? Are they, are they still God's people? And furthermore, if God knew that they would fail, why would he put this covenant in place to begin with. If he knew that they wouldn't be able to fulfill the law, what is the purpose of the law to begin with? So we want to look at this now. So you can actually turn with me to, um, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. As we unpack, man, why? what is, what is the purpose of the law? It says this in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Skip down a little bit, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Jesus, he has perfected for all time those 
who are being sanctified. So what we discover is that the law could never make us righteous. Uh, The offerings of sacrifices of bulls and goats and all that that the old covenant stipulated and required could never reconcile us to God fully. And in fact, this actually just reinforces what the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants promised, namely that an offspring would have to come from David and also Ruth, if you remember that, David and Ruth's line, and that this offspring would be the one who would bear the sins of many and establish his everlasting kingdom. So the writer of Hebrews knows this, uh, that Christ had to come, and that Jesus being infinite God and perfectly holy, it was the only sufficient sacrifice to take away sins. Jesus was, Jesus was the physical manifestation of God's said his loyal, faithful love to us, as we talked about last week. But we hear that, and man, I, I still can't help but think, okay, man, I get that Jesus had to save us, he's God, we're not, um, but why couldn't we just skip the old covenant and go right to the new, right? Why, why, why all this run around and falling into sin with the old covenant that we see in the Old Testament? What's the, what's the purpose? What is the point? Well, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul makes clear for us in the book of Galatians, so you can turn there, Galatians chapter 3. And a quick bit of context, Paul is writing to the Galatians uh, because there's a lot of heresy and false belief that has crept into the churches in these regions. Galatia is a region uh, within uh, Turkey. And the heresy said this, that, that faith plus works is what saves, right? So, yes, you need to trust in Jesus for salvation, of course, but that you also had to follow some parts of the Old Testament law in order to be saved, the Old Covenant. So let me read this for us. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says this. So again, Paul, he's, he's frustrated now at the Galatians. Let me ask you this, Galatians, Paul speaking. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul's saying, guys, did did the Holy Spirit come to you because of anything that you did? Or was it your faith in Jesus? Are you being perfected? Are you being made more like Christ because of your law following or your own actions? Or is it the Holy Spirit working in you as you yield yourself to him, as you come with open hands and he works in your life on your behalf? Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 16, chapter 3, same chapter. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. All right, so so this is now sounding a lot like the Davidic covenant, right? We're talking about the one offspring, singular, who is Christ, who's Jesus. And, you know, I love what one commentator says about this verse. Uh, He says here, Paul wanted to show that the greater fulfillment of the promise is not biological, but Christological, okay? So even though we're talking about Abraham's offspring, faith in Christ trumps biology and being a physical heir. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, the law, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, a.k.a. the law. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so there's a lot going on here in these passages, but just kind of a quick, a few quick uh, summarizing points. So hang with me here. First, verse 19. The law was put in place, we see, because of sin. Until the time when Jesus would come and would bring redemption, there needed to be something in place for God's people that outlined what holiness looked like, right? There had to be a defining standard of, uh, that God held them to. This was the law. Secondly, to Paul's point in verse 21, the law isn't contrary to the promises that were made to Abraham and David. No, uh, it actually represents God's holy standard. We couldn't just, the problem was, uh, it represents God's standard. We just couldn't fulfill it. So enter Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, who then says, hey, I haven't come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill the law on your behalf because you couldn't. Thirdly, verse 24, the law was our guardian, so a lot of other translations might say uh, our instructor or our tutor, as it instructs us not only in God's righteousness, but also in our need for a Savior. The law reveals to each one of us that we can't uphold it and that we desperately need a Savior. We need an advocate. We need somebody to rescue us. And then lastly, verse 28, 29, because of the fact that you're saved by faith, Remember, Christological, not biological. We are all now one in Christ. There is no distinction. So Jew, Greek, male, female. We are all Abraham's heir. By faith, not by blood, not by heritage. But by faith, we are heirs according to the promise. And so, Grace, so when we look at, at the whole of Scripture, right? So the covenants to David, to Abraham. When we look at the law and Exodus, when we look at what Hebrews and Galatians are saying about our need for Christ and the role of the law and showing us that need, when we look at all these together in tandem, we see that the law was put in place to restrain sin and to show us our need for a Savior. It was, and hear me on this, it was never put in place as a means of God's people finding salvation in it. It was a vehicle by which God could bless his people if they obeyed in a structure by which sin could be contained and controlled to some degree. But we have to see that, and listen to this right here, whether God's people sinned or not, they never stopped being God's chosen people so long as they had faith in him, so long as they came to him with open hands. And this was the case as long as they trusted him, even when sometimes sin got their better of them, as it often happens to us as well. So we see that, that the law is good so long as it is kept in its proper place and so long as we view it appropriately as new covenant people. Because I, as I said earlier, because of sin and our own pride, right, we all have an inclination to living by the law instead of by grace. And so what I actually want to do now is, is look at an interaction that Jesus has with a man 
uh, who boasts in his law following and who is who has attached his identity to the fact that he's a good person something we're all guilty of instead of attaching their identity to Christ and so Matthew 19 you can turn there I know we're all over the scriptures today Matthew chapter 19 this is the the famous kind of the famous story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and uh, let's see what Jesus says to him Matthew chapter 19 verse 16 I'll pick it up right here. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you, are, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, the law. Verse 18, he said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus says to him, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man, verse 20, said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. All right, so let's break this down uh, verse by verse. Again, there's kind of a lot going on. So verse 16, first, the young man assumes that he's good, right? He assumes that he could, he could follow the law in his own strength because he says, hey, Jesus, what is the good deed that I must do in order to have eternal life? He assumes that he can do something to merit salvation. And so Jesus uh, immediately goes after the error of his thinking, right? He says, he addresses his law-based, self-empowered pursuit of salvation. So in verse 17, Jesus attempts to, to recenter his thinking and to remind him that only God is good, thus inferring that we in hu as humans obviously aren't good as well. But Jesus also kind of plays the game a little bit. He entertains this young man's line of thinking, questioning, in order to show him the error of his thinking. So Jesus says, well, you've got to keep the commandments. Verse 18, so then the rich young man says, well, what commandments do I have to keep? Verse 19, Jesus lays out the law for him, right? He says, don't murder, steal, commit adultery, love, your, uh, love others, honor your father and mother. Jesus lays it all out. And then verse 20, the young man says this, and watch this. The young man actually says, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? So, I mean, man, pump the brakes here, right? This rich young ruler, he actually believes that he has kept all of the law. And what's so sad and ironic about this is that even though he, th he thinks that he's perfectly kept the law, which means his, sh his soul should be at rest, right? He's done it all. He's like Jesus. He's kept the law perfectly, so he should be good. But deep down in his, in his soul, he's still searching for life because he feels the emptiness in his soul. Because, again... The law was never intended to save. So he feels the discrepancy there. But in his blindness, he's like, yeah, man, I, I've done that, right? There's, but there's got to be something else, Jesus. There's got to be something I can do, something else I can do to restoke the fire of my pride, to perpetuate my merit-based thinking. There's got to be more I can do. Right? Just like we said earlier, this guy is attaching his identity to the law and to his merit-based way of, of living, but he's still empty inside. He's so deceived, and he has fallen prey to the thinking of the world. But in love, look at this now. Watch, watch how Jesus 
responds, verse 21, in love, Jesus really now presses into the depths of his heart and into his true affections. So Jesus says, okay, if you would find this life you seek, then sell everything and follow me. Basically saying, Jesus is basically saying, okay, okay, buddy, you've done all these things. You'd follow the law perfectly. So, so your heart should be in a good place. You, I mean, if you've done the law perfectly, you should be in a good, healthy place. So let's test it. Let's test the condition of your heart. Sell everything and follow me. Let's see how your heart responds when I call you to do that. Jesus invites the young man to trust him. But to a law-following person, just coming with open hands and receiving grace doesn't make sense. Because again, right, there's got to be something that I have to do. Uh, there's got to be more than just receiving grace. Jesus. I have to earn it in some way. This is like the subtle thought that goes on there, right? The law follower in their pride has to feel like they've done something. Instead of just accepting the gift and following the master, instead of just coming with open hands and bringing nothing but our neediness to him. So because of this, because of his wealth, because of where his affections lie and his money, because of the, the, the way his heart has been deceived, the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And, and lest we be too tempted to look judgmentally on the rich young ruler, we have to remember, Grace Hill, that we too, as redeemed New Covenant believers, man, we still fall prey to this law-based way of living and thinking. Uh, a seminary professor shared an illustration with me to kind of illustrate this that I love and I want to share it with you now. And so um, it's this. So during World War II, all right, uh, two of the U.S.'s greatest generals were uh, General George Patton and General Omar Bradley, right? So Patton was the higher ranking, older general of the two. And of Patton, President Eisenhower later went on to say that he was the best combat leader in the service. He's great. He was well-respected by his troops. He was exceedingly efficient at getting the job done. Uh, but Patton also had a temper. He was a hothead. And unfortunately, because of this, Omar Bradley was eventually promoted above Patton towards the end of the war. Right? Bradley had a much cooler head on his shoulders, and they needed this type of kind of just stable leadership in the upper ranks in order to win the war. So Patton, the famous old war hero who had the respect of all of his troops, uh, was surpassed in rank by Bradley, okay? And I try to imagine myself as a soldier. Maybe I'm lined up, I'm standing there with, with my platoon, we're all there, and there's General Patton, who I've served under for, for years, right? And then there's the newly appointed General Bradley. Now, I cognitively know that General B Bradley is my new uh, commanding officer, that he is the one calling the shots, that he's in charge, everybody knows this. But if I hear Patton, the man I've sat under his leadership for my whole time in the military, if I hear Patton bark an order at me, even if he's technically no longer my CO, my commanding officer, it's going to be really hard for me not to follow his commands without hesitation. Because after all, for all these years, man, I have sat under his leadership. It's been drilled into my head and into my being that when Patton gives a command, you obey without hesitation immediately. And so friends, we have spent our lives living in a world system that is based on law, that is based on merit. 
And even though we're New Covenant people, when push comes to shove, it is easy, it is tempting for us to fall back and to obey this voice that we've heard our lives. Some of us even followed our entire lives, right? Because for many of us, we've sat under the command of the law. And we live in a world that says, man, you gotta, you got to measure up. you got to earn your keep. And to a certain, a certain degree, that's true, but not to the degree that your identity is built upon it. We live in a flesh that wars against the Spirit and tells us, man, you don't need a Savior. You can do things on your own. You're the master of your own destiny. You have the power within. You do you. It's all around us, and it's in us. This law-based way of living and thinking. But we have to understand as believers that, man, as we experience life and that fruit um, that, that only Jesus can bring, that the only way that we grow, that we reflect Christ, that we bear fruit, is when we embrace our God-given identity, when we rest in the promises that God has given to us as his new covenant people. And so I want to I pr- transition now to, to some of those new covenant pro, uh, promises that we see in the New Testament. And I just want us to kind of sit in these, to kind of marinate in these a little bit, because these are the promises that we should be just feasting on every day, every morning, every night. So we'll have these on the screen, but promises like Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three that says, with the new covenant, the law because the Holy Spirit will be now inscribed on our hearts. It's not just inscribed in stone like with Moses, but it's actually because of the Spirit's ministry in us. And the law is testifying to our whole being of who God is and what he desires for us, revealing God's truth and his righteousness. Promises like Hebrews 9.15 where we see that we have a promised eternal inheritance and how that produces hope and confidence in us so that even though things in life get hard or difficult, man, our hope isn't in this world. It's in the one to come. And so we can be bold and have confidence in everything that the Lord calls us to. Promises like Luke twenty-two twenty and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, where we as covenant people are called to live in remembrance as we remember the hesed, the loyal love that Christ shows us. And because we live in remembrance, we're people who do this, of what Jesus has done for us, we are now empowered to show grace to others as we've been shown grace, doing so even when it's hard or difficult or scary. Promises like 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where the new covenant now brings a God-ordained ministry with us. So, right, you haven't just been saved just so you can sit on your laurels. You have been saved and you are being equipped and called to use your giftings and your skills to love and to bless and to serve others. The new covenant also, it brings life, whereas the old covenant brought death and condemnation. Promises in like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, there's a ton here. Verse 10, we see that we were estranged from God, but now we have been brought near into God's presence and fellowship. We've been shown mercy, and so now that enables us to show mercy to others. Verse 11, we are loved, beloved by God. And because of the Holy Spirit in us, we are now able to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We don't have to walk in wickedness and in sin any longer. A new way has been opened up to us. And as we walk in holiness, we can call others, other believers in each other to do the same, to walk in righteousness. Verse 12, our good deeds point others to God because uh, as people see them, they want to worship the God who, who is doing a work in us. So our good deeds cause others to, to fall more in love with Jesus. Galatians 3.29, as we looked at. 
By faith, we are now Abraham's offspring and co-heirs with Christ according to the covenantal promises, not because we've done anything, not because we've followed the law, but because we have come to him in faith again with open hands. And as those who have been adopted into this family, we now share the good news with others. And we likewise invite them in to this grace that we found to be a part of this family that promises life and joy. So Grace Hill, man, look at how each of these promises enables us to bear fruit as well as to show grace to others. Look at how the new covenant brings life as we allow the Holy Spirit to, through these promises, to take hold of our lives and to make us more like Jesus and to bring us joy. And how we then, with gospel empowerment and energy, are spurred on to love and to serve and to produce fruit and to bear good deeds, to reflect this covenant of grace to others. Love it. There's so many other examples of this in the New Testament where Jesus has these kind of interactions. And I would actually, I'm, I actually just want to list four uh, that I would encourage, and we're going to have these on the screen, that I would encourage you just to maybe at some point in your quiet time this week to go and just to read and to dive into. And so those four, real quick, are this. Uh, John 4, the w- woman at the well. Luke 7, a sinful woman who's forgiven. Luke 8, the demon-possessed man who was healed. And Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Go read some of these and, and notice the results. Notice the, the fruit that comes out of these people's lives as they open themselves up to God's grace, as they relinquish their, their pride, as they uh, relinquish their trying to uphold and follow the law perfectly. And they just say, come with open hands, say, Jesus, you have to take me. Take my life and transform it and do the work that you want to do. So, so I would encourage you to jump into one of those four passages uh, this week in your quiet time and just press in. So again, if we, if we placed our faith in Jesus, then we are a new covenant people saved by grace. And it takes immense intentionality and daily running into Jesus' arms, open hands, fighting to remember that this is our new identity and just coming to him. It's only by resting in these new covenant promises do we find the way that leads to life and to joy. And so, man, Grace Hill, uh, whoever you are listening to this morning, embrace this new covenant identity because as a follower of Christ, this is who uh, you truly are. Let me pray for us uh, and we'll continue to worship together. So, Father, we are just in awe of the fact that you love us, that you have pursued us, again, with said, with loyal love, that you long to know us, that you long to be reconciled to us. Lord, we praise you that you do the work. It's not up to us. And the law is meant to show us our need for you. It's meant to point us more and more to you, more and more to our Savior, Christ. Father, help us. We all have such a tendency and an inclination to falling back into law-based living, to feeling like, man, I, I read my Bible this week, or I served somebody this week, and so, man, that, that, that makes me feel more of, like more of a Christian. But that's not the gospel. We are saved by grace. And we walk in good works and in obedience because you have saved us, not so that we can merit salvation. So, Lord, we come this week and we again just ask that we would, that your spirit would help us to abide richly in your promises. 
May we enjoy the fact that we are beneficiaries of this new covenant. This covenant of hope, this covenant that brings life. And may we again, may we reflect this covenant of grace to others, be it in our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, whatever. Help us, Lord Jesus. We love you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.